0: Um, As we continue our study of the Apocrypha today, we're going to travel back to the years just prior to the fall of Jerusalem. The um, Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel about 150 years ago, and the Assyrians themselves have now been conquered by the Babylonians. The Babylonians, who are the world power in this story, Uh, are are governed by, obviously, King Nebuchadnezzar, and they, at this moment, are waging war on the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel is gone, got southern kingdom Nebuchadnezzar attacking. Y'all should recognize this time frame. Nebuchadnezzar has already taken several large waves of exiles, Uh, And Daniel and Ezekiel have already been deported to Babylon. So it's only a matter of time before Judah and Jerusalem are utterly destroyed. Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, sits on a tenuous throne. The book of Judith itself is set just before the fall of Jerusalem. But it wasn't written until much later, sometime around 125 B.C.E. We think it was probably originally written in Hebrew, but only Greek manuscripts of it have survived. When St. Jerome translated his Latin Vulgate version of the Bible back around 384 Common Era, he included Judith. um, And he was apparently working from both an earlier Latin manuscript And an Aramaic manuscript. So a lot of the the stories in the Bible, as I've told you, are just um, authors sitting down and taking verbal stories and and written versions of their stories and trying to to edit them uh, together to create uh, a, a new written version in whatever language they're working in. So the fact that this story had been translated into so many languages and was so widely available over all those centuries tells us that the story was quite popular, which makes sense. Excuse me. Much like the Book of Esther, it's a rollicking good story with clear villains and a smart and beautiful shiro. As the story begins, Nebuchadnezzar is beginning his tussles with the Medes and the Persians. He has turned his attention north towards Medea, and he's claimed rule over the Medes. But he hasn't actually established it yet, and King Arphaxad of the Medes is fighting back. As a side note, historically, there is no King Arphaxad of Medea during this time of Nebuchadnezzar, nor ever for that matter. This is a hint that the story may not be something to be taken entirely literally. Well, Nebuchadnezzar needs help fighting the Medes and he sends messages to all the in regions that he imagines he controls, all the this red part of Babylonia and even the purple part down in Egypt, but he gets ignored. All of the regions thumb their noses at Nebuchadnezzar's demand for help. And Nebuchadnezzar is enraged. He swears to destroy all the nations who refuse to come to his aid against the Medes. Now, throughout the book of Judith, Nebuchadnezzar is not referred to as the king of the Babylonians, which is who he actually was historically. Instead, the author refers to him as the king of the Assyrians, a nation he conquered quite some time ago. Assyria would have been this part, you know, north of Babylonia and west of Medea. Uh, Its capital was Nineveh, and in the book of Judith, this is where Nebuchadnezzar is. Infuriated that none of the other nations will come to his aid, Nebuchadnezzar calls forth his great general and sends him out with a vast army to conquer all the lands who have disobeyed him. What's strange is that in this story, the general's name is Holofernes, which is a Persian name, and the Persians are enemies of Babylon at this time, and there is no such general under Nebuchadnezzar as far as we know. This whole story seems to be a mishmash of characters spanning hundreds of years of history and perhaps hundreds of years of imagination and embellishment. Anyway, according to the story, Nebuchadnezzar's general Holofernes takes all the armies of Assyria and marches south, destroying everything in his wake. None of this is historically accurate. By the time he reaches Judea and the nations along the coast of the Mediterranean, the nations are sending peace envoys to him, offering complete surrender. He finally reaches the area of Judea near a place called Scythopolis, which is a Greek name for the ancient Hebrew city of Beit Sheon. This is another anomaly. The name of this city is not changed to Scythopolis until the Greeks take over the world a few hundred years after this story is set. It's yet another hint that this story is a mashup that was written hundreds of years after the events it recounts. Holofernes pauses near here for a month to regroup and prepare to move southward towards Jerusalem. There's a bizarre verse in chapter four saying that the people of Judea had recently come back from captivity, which makes no historical sense whatsoever. Um, They were not coming back to captivity during the reign of Zedekiah. But if you skip that weirdness, the point of the story is that everyone in Jer- Jerusalem is scared to death. The high priest in Jerusalem, a man named Joachim, sends urgent word to those living near the plain of Esdraelon. We know it by its biblical name, the Valley of Jezreel. He tells the Judeans living there to defend the mountain passes so that Holofernes cannot pass. The town where Judith lives, Bethulia, must be somewhere near these mountain passes. And everyone in Israel puts on sackcloth and ashes and prays and fasts for deliverance from this terrible threat. Chapter 4 verse 10 is the second place in the Bible we've seen a reference to even the animals wearing sackcloth. We saw that back in the Jonah story too, remember? They even, here in this story of Judith, they even put sackcloth around the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. Well, General Holofernes hears that the people of Judea have fortified against him. And he reaches out to the nations surrounding them, you know, Moab, Ammon, the nations along the coast, and asks them how strong these Judeans actually are. As a side note, Holofernes has a crown in some of the illustrations here, but he was not a king, he is Nebuchadnezzar's Assyrian general in this story. The leader of Ammon just across the Jordan is a man named Achior. Achior tells Holofernes the story of Israel from the time when Abram left Ur of the Chaldees and on through the captivity in Egypt the miracles of the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, and how they took the land of Canaan. He tells Holofernes that as long as these Judeans obey their God, they prosper. But whenever they do not, they are defeated in battle and taken captive. It's a pretty astounding summary of their entire history of Israel in a few short verses in chapter 5. Akior continues, we need to figure out if they're being faithful to their god. If not, then certainly take them in battle. But if they are being faithful, you should pass them by. Well, that doesn't sit well with General Holofernes or his advisors, and there is a great uproar. Holofernes says, there is no god but Nebuchadnezzar. We have no fear of the god of Israel, you have given false counsel, and when we are through destroying Israel, we will return and destroy you Ammonites as well. Holofernes has Achior tied up and cast into the heavily defended mountain pass near Bethulia, the town where Judith lives, thinking the Israelites will certainly kill him. But instead, The Israelites have mercy on Achior and bring him into their town. And Achior tells them everything Holofernes is planning. Again, the people cry out to God and pray for deliverance. The next day, General Holofernes and his vast army sneak down to Bethulia and scout out the territory. Then, They return to their camp. This time, it's the people of Moab who try to warn General Holofernes he's making a mistake to attack the Israelites because their god fights for them. The Moabites advise Holofernes to starve them out. Well, that seems like a good plan. So Holofernes captures the springs that supply water to Bethulia. At this point, things are looking pretty desperate for Bethulia. Not only has Holofernes gathered a great army against them, but both the armies of Moab and Ammon have joined him, and they have captured Bethulia's only water source. And a third time, the people cry out to God and pray for deliverance. They are able to hold out for 34 days. But eventually, every drop of water they've stored runs out. As the people of Bethulia begin to die, they turn on their leader, Osias, and cry, it is better for us to surrender than to watch our children die by starvation. But Osias encourages them to hold out just just five days longer, praying for God's mercy. At the end of five days, God has not come to their aid. He promises he will surrender the town. It is here, finally, we meet Judith, a widow living in Bethulia. Her name in Greek is Yudith, and in Hebrew would be Yehudit, which is the word for Jewish woman. And all Judith is certainly a common name. This Shiro is meant to be understood, I think, as a representative of any brave Jewish woman. Her name is Jewish woman. And there are no well-to-do people left in Judah by this time. They've all been taken captive already. So her being well-to-do is another anachronism in the story. Judith was widowed A little over three years ago when her husband died suddenly of heat stroke ever since she's lived in a shelter kind of a lean-to on the roof of her house fasting always except on sabbath and holy days she is extremely beautiful and extremely rich When Judith hears what's happening, she summons the town leader Osias and all the elders to her and scolds them for putting the Lord to the test like this. She tells them they must trust God and only God for deliverance, even after the five days run out. The leaders are encouraged by her words and her example. Judith says, I tell you now, I will do a thing that will be talked about for generations to come. All generations will call me blessed. As for you, you stand by the town gate this night. My maid and I will pass outside the town gate. Do not question us or try to stop us. And the town leader, Osias, says, go in peace. And may God go with you to defeat our enemies. Judith spends the rest of the day in prayer, reminding the Lord of all the injustices the people have endured under Assyrian rule. And asking God to help her deceive General Holofernes and to break the pride of the Assyrians by the hand of a woman. All this is in chapter 9. I think it's interesting that Judith is asking God to participate in a lie and a deception. I, I can't remember anywhere else in Scripture that happened. To let you know when we do our discussion groups. Let me know if you think of a place. Even Jacob with his shenanigans with the spotted sheep, and Abram with his deceits with the Pharaohs, and you know, being, and Sarah being his sister, they did not enlist God in their lies and deceptions. This is the first time I, I think the first time I've seen this. Anyway, with that prayer, Judith goes downstairs into her home, calls her maid, and puts on fine lotions she dresses with care putting on fine clothing and jewelry and arranging her hair she's quite literally dressed to kill she puts some wine and oil and food in a bag and then she and her maid go down to the city gates there the city leaders bless her and open the gates for her And Judith and her maid walk directly towards the Assyrian camp. When she reaches the edge of the valley, the soldiers on watch stop her and ask her what her business is. And Judith tells them she is a Hebrew and she's fleeing her people because they're about to be destroyed by you Assyrians. She offers to show General Holofernes a way to defeat the Hebrews without losing a single one of his troops. And because Judith is very beautiful and very convincing, the soldiers believe her. They give her an escort of 100 men, and they take her to the tent of General Holofernes. And of course, rumors run through the camp ahead of Judith and her escort. When Judith arrives at General Holofernes' tent, he is resting on his sumptuous couch with all kinds of luxuries around him. Judith is brought into his tent, and everyone marvels at her beauty. And Holofernes says, Do not be afraid. I have never hurt anyone who willingly surrendered to Nebuchadnezzar. You are safe with me. <laughs> And Judith begins her plan of deceit, saying, I promise not to lie to you if you will do everything I say. You will achieve your purpose, for you are very great and wise, and Nebuchadnezzar has only sent you for our own good. She really lays it on thick, and General Hall of Fairness laps up every word. Then she says, remember Akior of Ammon, who told you about how our God protects us when we are faithful to him, but that if we wander away from our God, we will fall at the hands of our enemies. You had Akior tied up and thrown to us, and he told us everything he had told you. And everything he told you is absolutely true. But never fear, General Holofernes, for these Hebrews will sin against their God. They have run out of food, they are starving, and they will soon begin to eat all the unclean things their God has forbidden them to eat then they will eat all the grain they're supposed to tithe to their God and contribute to his priests. These are things they're not supposed to even touch. And when they do that, my general, on that day, they will be destroyed. I alone worship God truly, and I will know when the day arrives that they have sinned against my God. That is why I have fled to you. I will tell you when the time is right to go forth with your army and take them. Now, if General Holofernes had any idea who our God is, he would know that Judith is lying through our teeth because our God would never want us to starve to death while there is rain in the temple. When Jesus' disciples get hungry in the New Testament, he defends them picking food to eat on the Sabbath, saying people were not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for the people. But General Holofernes does not know our God. He is completely taken in by Judith's words. General Holofernes and all those with him see how beautiful and wise Judith is. And he says to her, if you will do as you say, then your God will be my God and you will dwell in the house of King Nebuchadnezzar and be famous through all the land. And General Holofernes orders that a feast be laid for Judith, but she demurs and says she must only eat what is acceptable to her God. She says, I have brought provisions with me. And Hall of Fairness protests, but what if you run out? And Judith says, do not worry about me. What I have brought will be sufficient. And so Judith and her maid are taken to their tent to sleep. Early the next morning, Judith petitions General Holifernis to allow her and her maid to go outside the camp to pray each evening. And Holifernis instructs his guard to allow them to do this. For three days, Judith establishes a pattern of going out into the Valley of Bethulia at night to pray, then coming back into the camp and washing herself in the fountain at the camp, (laughs) which production I imagine was closely attended by the soldiers. Afterwards, Judith would eat her provisions inside her own tent. On the fourth day, Hall of Fairness has a plan of his own. He has a feast prepared, but does not invite anyone to it. Instead, he tells his eunuch, to go and convince Judith to come dine with him. Judith tells the eunuch, of course, it will be a joy to dine with General Holofernes, a joy I will cherish until the day of my death. And she dresses herself up again in all her finery and goes into General Holofernes' tent, bringing her own food with her. Holofernes of course is planning to seduce Judith and he plies her with food and drink and more drink but Judith only eats and drinks what she's brought with her by the time evening falls general Holofernes has drunk more than he's ever drunk in his whole life the eunuch knowing what Holofernes has in mind shoos all the servants out of the tent And shuts the door, leaving Judith alone with the drunken and lecherous general. But before the eunuch shuts the door, Judith reminds him that she must go out shortly to say her prayers in the valley, as she does every night. This is the most dangerous part of Judith's plan, but it is not long at all before General Holofernes passes out from drunkenness, and Judith. Pray to God for strength and courage. Takes his scimitar, grabs his hair, and striking twice with all her might, she cuts off his head. She covers his body with a large drape and puts his head in her food bag. Then she leaves the tent and she and her maid go out of the camp with the bag that has Holofernes' head in it as if they are going to their regular nightly prayers. This time, however, they keep going right to the gates of Bethulia. Judith cries out to the watchman of the gate, open the gates, open the gates, that I may show you what God has done this day. Everyone rushes out of the city to meet Judith, and when she tells them God has delivered them and that General Holofernes has been struck down by the hand of a woman, they can hardly believe it, until, of course, she pulls his head out of her handbag. Judith gives glory to God, saying, God allowed me to deceive our enemies, but never did I need to sin or defile or shame myself and all the people worship God. After that, Judith tells them to hang Holofernes' head on the walls of the city and prepare to attack the Assyrians early the next morning. She assures them the Assyrians will be thrown into utter confusion by the death of their general. Judith then has Achior of Ammon brought to her so he can see that the man who cast him out to die has now himself been slain. When Achior sees the general's gory head, he paints. But when he is revived and hears Judith's story, he believes in God and is circumcised and welcomed into the house of Israel. Now, this is actually a big deal. Because up until this time frame, there was no way for an Ammonite or another foreigner to become an Israelite. The only exception I can think of in the whole of the Hebrew Bible is Ruth, who was originally a Moabite, but she was a woman. So no no circumcision was involved. And women obviously took on the citizenship of their husbands. So this whole concept of conversion to Judaism and by becoming circumcised and choosing to be a Jew and then being accepted as an Israelite by the Jews is a brand new thing that has its roots right here in the intertestamental period when this book was actually written. And so the story ends just as Judith predicts. The Assyrian soldiers are thrown into confusion when they discover Holofernes beheaded in his own tent. The Israelite soldiers pursue the Assyrians all the way up past Damascus and return with great spoils. Judith herself is given Holofernes' tent and all his possessions. Judith leads all of Israel in a great song of thanksgiving to God, with a great deal of emphasis on God's use of a woman to bring about the defeat of the Assyrians. Even the soldiers are called, quote, sons of ladies in her song of triumph. It's terrific. Israel celebrates and worships God for three months. Judith returns to her own home where she never remarries. She eventually frees her maid, and she herself lives to the ripe old age of 105 and then dies. All of Israel mourns her death for seven days, and Israel is safe for a long time thereafter. So there's some tricky things in this story, aren't there? We'll ponder some of them in our breakout session today. (laughs) That story is a hoot. Go ahead and um, turn on your microphones and we'll just stay together today since we have practically half half the class out for one reason or another, but, um, turn your, turn your microphones on and pull out your study guides. Uh, and I didn't really uh, ask any particular questions, just kind of your general impressions. You know, what, what part of the story gives you pause or what do you, you know, what, how is God different or, or the same in this story? Um, why, why would people, some people want to include this story in the bible and others want to ex very vehemently want to exclude it
1: it seems to me you you sort of gave it away that uh <laughs> the only time you can think of that god is involved in and encourages
2: deception
0: you know and i don't know if i'm right about that can you all think of another time where where god you know somebody prayed to god help me lie and deceive I know, I know in the story of Jacob, that Jacob himself was, you know, a liar and deceitful and did all these horrible things. But, and I remember him
3: praying for God to rescue him from the consequences of that. (laughs) Maybe not praying to God. You gave some examples where deception was involved in the story and in getting to a good outcome. Um but i'm I'm I think the implication is that God didn't complain about it um, yeah, I, but I don't know, yeah, right about um who was the prostitute that the, who
0: <laughs> which who Ju- um, pretended to be a prostitute with Judah yes and well and also there was she the, did that under the law and judah was wrong
3: correct but i don't remember did she pray to god to help i don't her? remember that she did and and i'm thinking about ruth the book of ruth where god's not mentioned but she's um I'm trying to remember if she actually had deception and there was deception involved in that story as well there's a lot of deception
0: there's deception all over the place, like after the um rape of Dina, remember um when her brothers deceived the men of Shechem and pretended they were gonna be friends, and then they you know slaughtered them all on day three after they'd all been circumcised and they were in pain and couldn't move, you know, but none of it, and then that ended up with you know terrible consequences there's like you said, there's tons of deception I just can't think of
2: yes was there in the, in the in story God. of um I think it was Rahab,
0: mm, who uh-huh. you know who yes
2: in Jericho. Who, uh, n- n- no, then that's not who it is. Um, the woman who was married to I think it was Jacob's sons. The she yeah. she married one. She married no. She married one son right. and he died, and then the second son had to marry her, oh, and he was oh, 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 yeah, a yeah. child, and he mm-hmm. died. So it was up to the father-in-law to marry her, and then she yeah, went through this whole elaborate story. thing of yes, posing yes. as a prostitute, yes. and then coming yes, back exactly. and proving. Was there a prayer in there at some point of asking God to help her?
0: I, I think I I I don't remember God being asked to help with the de- prostitute deception, you know. Just because it wasn't recorded doesn't mean it didn't happen. Exactly. That's exactly right. You know, and look who's writing the stories. You know, they're they're trying to put God in the best possible light. And so I, I'm so glad you said that, Shirley, because that that's the point. Just because we don't see it in the stories doesn't mean people haven't been praying all along for God to help them in their lies and deception, right? Um, So it comes down to this idea that the Bible is written by human
4: beings
0: (laughs) in all their dirt and, and God responds to us in all our dirt. And, and sometimes we get, rescued from the consequences of our actions and sometimes we don't and god you know i i don't know what do y'all think you know gail
5: this this is a little off but it puts something i did yesterday in a in a new light which i already felt bad about but now i feel really bad about (laughs) and that was I had to be somewhere by 1130 or they were going to lock the doors and I would have to wait until one o'clock and I was wearing shorts and a wrinkled shirt. So I didn't want to go to the office and kill an hour and a half. So the whole way there, I was praying, God, help me with the lights, with the traffic, help me, help me, help me make it on time. So I parked my car, I grabbed my mask and phone and I run into the building Get upstairs, and as I'm getting my little golf pencil, somebody comes out the door, the locked door. So I sneak in. It's 1134, (laughs) and I went over to the sheet to sign up for my shots, and I put down 1130, knowing (laughs) they wouldn't give it to me at 1134. And it was 1134 because there's a big clock right next to the sign. And I went, it's a little lie. It'll be okay. And then I sat down and they ignored me until 11.42 when a new person came out and they gave me my shot. And I was able to get home and then get back to work and not waste an hour and a half of time. And the whole time I felt miserable about that four-minute lie. And now I don't feel any better because I literally prayed for this and he did bless me and I thanked him but then I acted in a less than stellar manner on my own character does that make sense?
0: no and that makes no sense whatsoever don't think about it twice <laughs> but...
5: I did feel bad about it. it it did make me feel bad about my character I
0: know I know, and I, it's the principle of the thing, not the minuteness of the deed.
5: God if I has already asked forgiven him for you. For help, I'd have been okay with it, but I did ask for help. Did
1: <laughs> you hear Woody? Woody made a good point. Say it again, God Woody. God has already forgiven you. <laughs> <That's true.
2: laughs> you know, I think that I think that so many of us were raised in churches where we were told even a little white lie is is an abomination to God. Yep. You know, even if you say something out of kindness that that's a sin, and I think you know fudging four minutes to get a shot, <laughs> I would have done that, and it never would have bothered my conscience the end
3: justifies the means <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's this, um. um a sincerely sincere concern for whether she acted in an ethical manner um i think that um a couple things apply you're super aware of it right oh yeah uh, and um i think that the uh, an examination of conscience and an act of contrition are there for a reason which is and at the end of the act of contrition that I was taught when I uh, in my Catholic youth, it is to avoid the nearest temptation of sin. That's one of the things that you pray for, right? Is make the future different. And when I was uh, managing people, and there was something that happened that was uh, less than um, less than the best way to do things, and sometimes destructive. The way that I learned, unfortunately, much farther along in my career than I wish I had learned it was when you correct someone or yourself, it's not about what happened. It's about the future. And um, I suspect that this will significantly impact how you look at a situation in the future. And I think that that's probably where grace is involved.
5: Yeah, that's true.
0: I'm, I'm, I'm thinking um, of an image of a train. And this train has cars. And this is God's train for purposes of illustration. And God has a destination. You all know what God's destination is. What is God's destination? Overall, generally. God.
3: God is the destination.
0: God is the destination. And it is, it is for us to be together with God. Right? For God to be where we are and for us to be where God is. That's the destination. Everything needs to be viewed from that perspective. Absolutely. Everything in our lives, everything in the Bible. All right. And what we need to do is decouple some of these cars <laughs> because, because. God is not responding to the minutiae of our sin. All right. To the minutiae of our humanity. God is not derailed by impure prayers. All <laughs> right. Um, like Judith's. Um, God is not derailed. By our failures. God is not even derailed by us wanting to go this other direction. Okay. We can choose to decouple ourselves and go another direction. All right. God never forgets where we went. He remembers that siding. Okay. And, and will come and get us. But let, but what God responds to is us our actual spirit our being who we are and who we are created to be that is what god cares about and yes we screw up and we need to do better and All of that. And God will help us with all of that. That's why we study these things. That's why we think, that's why God said, keep thinking about the things I told you. Write it on your forehead. Put it on a sticky note on your mirror so that you see it every day. All right. Um, Keep thinking about these things of God. But in the end, God is going to get to the destination where we will be with God and God be with us and so we cannot take these individual instances flying past our windows and say oh god blessed me because i did xyz or i prayed xyz or oh god you know is mad at me because this bad thing happened to me somehow we have to decouple that part of the train that we're dragging along behind us because we're getting to a part of the Bible where that theology of God punishing us. You know, if something bad is because it's God punishing us. And if it's something good, it's because God is blessing us. That theology is about to bear big fruit. It's going to get really attractive to the, to the Jews. All right. Um, And you can see it all throughout the writings of the Hebrew Bible. We've been fighting that worldview all along. I want us to take this story and and realize how important it is to decouple these external things that are happening to us from, quote, God being angry with us or God being pleased with us. What God said was, if you come with me, there is blessing. If you don't come with me, there is death. That is bigger picture stuff. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Surely. And what did you have, hon? Oh, I'm getting excited here listening to you. Um,
1: <laughs> little things. Those of us who were raised in the fundamentalist background were trained to look at minutia the little things mattered right um little things they made mountains out of molehills is what i'm saying but um right you know we were taught you're a thief if you take a dime as much as if you take 100 dollars you know right, right. Um, little things matter and though in, for the most part, I, I, I kind of still cling to that. Um, I won't steal a dime cause that's, I'm still a thief if I take a dime, but, um, but yet I've been known to, you know, oh, I got a, I got two sodas out of the machine instead of one. Cool. God bless me. So, I mean, we do <laughs> those things, you know, we do those things and because of our fundamentalists those of us who are you know who were brought up baptist or you know in a fundamentalist background we look at those little things and we blow them out of proportion and i think god is a god of little things god does take care of the little things but he but he also told us not to worry about those little things and i think sometimes we Human beings tend to put the emphasis on the wrong syllable, <laughs> and and um, what you were just saying, I just got so excited listening to that because
0: it's truth. Well, and and Donna has some good comments over in the chat. Um, you know, the whole kind of idea that the view of grace. Um, can end up giving us kind of a get out of jail free card and let and so we just do whatever we want. And then we just ask for absolution. And then we just keep on doing whatever we want. And we've seen lots of places in the Hebrew Bible where God, you know, called that out. That's not a new thing. That's not a new Christian thing. We didn't invent that folks. (laughs) Um, God pointed that out quite a lot. And said Didn't James talk about that too I, I see there later but. yeah I see God said I see what you're doing <laughs> you, know, you think I don't know mm-hmm. um, but it never was about the little stuff um, and that's part of what I pulled out in the lesson about Sabbath being for people not people for the Sabbath right that Sabbath was the original law it it preceded all other law, I like a lot, thousands of years. And yet, its intent was to bless us. Mm -hmm. You know, so if we're looking at our relationship with God in any way other than God is trying to bless us by helping us see the wholesome way, you know? then we've we've misunderstood the theology somehow, Marlene. you had
2: something yeah, I was just thinking <clears throat> uh listening to <clears throat> Shirley and to you, that it seems like a lot of times we humans have trouble grasping that big picture of you know mm-hmm. God's overall intent that's that feels maybe. A little too, and not concrete enough. Mm-hmm. And so we tend to focus on these minutiae. You know, not everybody is going to go out and rob a bank, but we all have probably, you know, seen somebody drop a dollar uh, on the floor and didn't mention it to them and then took it ourselves or got that extra can of coke or whatever it was. And so somewhere along the way, um, that became equated with something that would do as you said derail us from the ultimate goal of God's relationship to humanity and we focus on these little teeny tiny things and say this this one little thing is gonna damn you if you don't fully confess and you know Um, and I you know maybe because it's easier for us to understand these little things than a big concept. Does that maybe. make sense? Maybe. But I'm thinking oh, I I'm not I I think
0: what I'm I'm not saying that it doesn't matter what we do. I'm not saying that God doesn't care what we do. So in your example of the dollar dropped on the floor, I think that God's response would be when you picked it up and you knew you were doing wrong would be you knew you were doing wrong (laughs) what is this saying about your heart
5: I think it builds character for you when you have to examine yourself in those ways
0: Mm -hmm. and because it it was Uh, a big deal it doesn't mean it was a big the dollar was a big deal or the four minutes was a big deal what matters is that conversation with god Mm -hmm. you
2: know yeah yeah Yeah. and that's and that's what what i guess i didn't say make my point clearly what i'm saying is um that yes it's a matter of of self-examination and and saying oh okay so yeah i need to change that that whatever it was in me that made me do that. Right. But that that one little act is not going to throw us out of heaven. Exactly. But many of us were raised in that kind of an environment that, that yes. you know, that even the thought could exclude us.
0: Yes. There was a great deal of measurement in many of our concept of God. Right that we were constantly being measured against an impossible ideal and that the only way we could overcome that measurement was because Jesus was going to, you know, had saved us and that anybody who hadn't been saved by Jesus was going to fall short of this.
4: I also think that in some way, I I know the way God has it, you know, you feel bad about it. Then you talk to God because, that's what he wants is a, is you talking to him but I also think the other thing is that our churches have taught people that that you have to follow their rules to be able to get into heaven and I think that's kind of where people get off track as to what God is actually saying um, is that yeah, talk to me about it. You don't have to worry about it because we're talking, but you have to, but with the way churches make people feel is it's like any little tiny slip up, you're, not, you're never going to see heaven. Or if somebody does a huge slip up, they're never going to see heaven, but I don't think God sees those as different.
0: <laughs> yes, Julia.
5: Okay, these are great points, but I'd like to pivot because I had one thought, only one thought on question two. All right. I wanted to share it because I had a thought. All right. Made, in what ways is it similar to other stories in the Bible? The only thing I could think of was Samson and Delilah. There was deceit there, and the roles are reversed, but it was a woman bringing down the hero
0: yeah and it, and it also um, reminds me of the story of Jael in the tent right remember her driving the tent peg through the temple? oh of the yeah Puma? that remember nice that one?
3: one yeah with with uh, all due respect to Woody one more time women bust in the patriarchy and not get <laughs> credit for it in modern-day Christianity just say. I loved,
0: I loved Judah's song and calling the soldiers sons of ladies. (laughs) But got another comment over here that um, another kind of corollary to all of this that we live with in our hearts, in our culture, especially in our Christian culture is the idea of the slippery slope. You know, and that if you give on, if you if you give on one thing, then it's all gonna. You're just gonna slide down into hell. <laughs> you know, the whole Bible will fall apart. Nothing will make sense. You ha- will end up in hell. And
1: uh, how does this relate to the New Testament story um, that if you if you show yourself to be trustworthy in small things, then you can also be trusted with big things.
0: Oh. Is
1: that different? Is that?
0: No, that's not different at all. That sounds to me like somebody training. And I think that's what our incarnation is. I think it is a chance for us to train. It is, we are given chances to be faithful in small things so that we can be given larger things. I think- I think incarnation is just a really special thing that Jesus um, came to show us how to do it. And he constantly talked about all he did. He, He just went around and talked about how much God loves us and how we need to not worry about the future. And how we have the power to heal each other. And we need to be doing that. That's kind of pretty much Jesus in a nutshell. And that's what I think our incarnation is. And there's no slippery slope, there's no like big rule book or measuring stick in the sky. It's a matter of learning to be with our mother God in the sense that a a child in the womb learns its mother's voice simply from being there and then is incarnated at birth and learns more from small up, as Woody is pointing out, right? This is what we have been born into this world and god is the mother's voice we need to be listening for
5: yeah i think some of that slippery slope and all that that's where your religion versus your faith comes in you know and goodness knows i've been to so many different churches maybe have another one in my future but we will see and it's it's the rules of the religion that trip us up whereas if you set that aside and you just focus on your faith
0: then i think you can draw closer yeah it certainly causes less judgment of each other if we if we concentrate on facing God and being in relationship with God ourselves and letting other people's people do the same alongside of, of us. And then we can help each other. We can reach out and help each other. Well, I mean, if we
1: focus on that, we're all learning, you know, if we are in this journey of learning, it leads back to, the theme of the Old Testament has been humility. So if we can all approach it as we're all learners, then we are, like you said, um, not expecting others to be where we're at. We can just all respect that we are in this unique journey of growing and becoming more humble. I don't
0: know. Yes, because becoming more humble is growing.
3: I mean, Erica, hard to get I,
5: out of our own way on that because of that Erica, judgment thing sorry Marlene
2: oh that's okay I, I was just, just going to comment on um, Erica's use of language there that really struck me we are all learners as opposed to we are all sinners isn't that, that just, a
0: beautiful difference that yes. is such a powerful difference I'm going to write that down
3: I love that <laughs> same thing we are all learners. And that if the church takes on the role of supporting the learner the church is is doing, is doing good, that when a church is focused on minutia, um, then I think they're, that's a dangerous position relative to uh, Jesus is the way, the truth and life, we're going to arbitrate that. Um, And I think that 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 has caused a lot of problems on an individual level and in much larger and larger and larger social um, systems.
0: Yes. And so I want to think about this in the context. I don't want to talk politics. I don't want to talk policies. I just want to have as Hold the this I these ideas, these big ideas, that whole statement, we are all learners instead of we are all sinners, is so life-giving to me. It's it's kind of like the church just kind of like Martha is talking about, just starts to bubble up out of that, you know, of all the life-giving that we can do and that we are and that we can be. Um And I want to put that firmly in the perspective of the times we're living in and the threats to our physical habitat, to our nation, and to the idea of this, I want this, to help us each find a safe place to stand in the middle of all this, where we can remember viscerally the destination while we are living in this turmoil. This is, this is important. And and it has to be, we are talking about understanding things that are the biggest themes in the Bible and that are transcending the individual stories of the individual people and the individual situations. We ourselves are living in a situation that will one day be written down. And if, this class isn't making a difference in helping you get to the piece that makes no sense in the middle of all of this, then it's a waste of time. This has to be real and it has to be how we are being in the world now.
5: You gal, that's got to be hard
0: to share. The what's hard about it is that these are inarticulatable truths. Mm -hmm. When you reach these truths, they are only spoken heart to heart and spirit to spirit, but those are the ones that matter. I was working with somebody to this week who is in a situation with um, a person who has Alzheimer's. And I was helping her understand the different stages of Alzheimer's and understanding how to respond in the different stages that would be the most helpful. And, And as a person, goes through alzheimer's they gradually lose they lose their you know logicking ability right and they lose their large then they lose their large motor skills their smaller motor skills they begin to not be able to speak clearly they are you know and gradually they lose the ability to to move or to speak at all um except on rare occasions, usually flashes where someone sings them a song and they can respond to that song. You know, We are all like that at our core. There, just because that person has reached that end stage where they cannot move and cannot speak, does not mean there is less of a person inside there. And so the, the messages that I want us to be laying down from these Bible classes are these core heart, soul, spirit, truths that will be there when we have nothing else
3: left. And in the end,
0: that's where God is. And it's not about, did you pray the sinner's prayer? Did you tithe at church? You know, did you sign in four minutes earlier than you really (laughs) should (laughs) have? That's not where the important stuff lives. And that's, these are not things I can do. All that this Bible class is, is a a cup for you to swim around in, you know, and find God yourself. So that's kind of. All I've got. Do we had? I heard somebody.
5: No, I just said thank you.
0: Yeah. No. This is really important stuff, and we're about to. I I finally got over the hump with the Maccabees. Yay! And <laughs> they like to kill me. Um, I'm now writing those lessons. I've got the, all the research done. I'm in the process of writing the lessons, and then we'll see what happens. We'll see how we do on pictures. They, not a lot of pictures for that.
1: Um, on, on a on a less deep note uh, from what you were saying a minute ago, um, I'm quite confident that you, you made God chuckle today with your
0: Judith voice.
1: <laughs> yes. You certainly made me chuckle.
0: I tell you what, that's the worst thing about doing these on Zoom. Mm-hmm. Is I, we can't hear each other laugh and I can't actually play to you like I would if we were in a room. Oh, but that was awesome storytelling.
3: That was, that was.
0: Yeah. I, I have so much fun telling stories. I honestly do. It's a blessing to me.
5: Well, in the, the model,
0: the pictures
5: in, in the story that you used today, didn't really
1: look like the model in the teaser you
0: said. I know, know. sorry.
1: <laughs> it was a bait and switch.
3: <laughs> yeah. Oh,
1: I was loving those pictures.
0: I was <laughs> there for those pictures
1: today. Yeah,
0: it was so fun. But we're <laughs> going to have one more. We have one more class that is stories of the apocrypha, you know, kind of other books of the apocrypha. Then we'll do the Maccabees. And I tell you what, the Maccabees is, is bad and, and, and barbaric as the stories from the end of Israel and Judah so we're just going to have to put our big girl panties on and make it through um but that Woody (laughs) Uh... he's out of here and Scott yeah and Scott too yes and that, uh, but, yeah, but we will, we will, but it's so important. It's such an important part of the history, and it gives us um, information that helps us, will help us understand what Jesus was walking into. So it's totally worth it. Um, and I'm looking forward to doing it with you. Love you all.
5: Thank you.
0: Bye-bye. Bye you bye.
5: Bye.